Section 24 of The World and Will as Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. Third Book the world as idea second aspect paras forty four to forty six what the two arts we have spoken of accomplish for these lowest grades of the objectivity of will is performed for the higher grades of vegetable nature by artistic horticulture the landscape beauty of a scene consists for the most part in the multiplicity of natural objects which are present in it and then in the fact that they are clearly separated appear distinctly and yet exhibit a fitting connection and alternation these two conditions are assisted and promoted by landscape gardening but it has by no means such a mastery over its material as architecture and therefore its effect is limited the beauty with which it is concerned belongs almost exclusively to nature. It has done little for it, and, on the other hand, it can do little against unfavorable nature. And when nature works not for it, but against it, its achievements are small. The vegetable world offers itself everywhere for aesthetic enjoyment without the medium of art, but so far as it is an object of art. It belongs principally to landscape painting, to the province of which all the rest of unconscious nature also belongs. In paintings of still life and of mere architecture, ruins, interiors of churches, etc., the subjective side of aesthetic pleasure is predominant, that is, our satisfaction does not lie principally in the direct comprehension of the represented ideas but rather in the subjective correlative of this comprehension, pure, willless knowing. For, because the painter lets us see these things through his eyes, we at once receive a sympathetic and reflected sense of the deep spiritual peace and absolute silence of the will, which were necessary in order to enter with knowledge so entirely into these lifeless objects and comprehend them with such love that is in this case with such a degree of objectivity the effect of landscape painting proper is indeed as a whole of this kind but because the ideas expressed are more distinct and significant as higher grades of the objectivity of will the objective side of aesthetic pleasure already comes more to the front and assumes as much importance as the subjective side Pure knowing as such is no longer the paramount consideration, for we are equally affected by the known platonic idea, the world as idea at an important grade of the objectification of will. But a far higher grade is revealed by animal painting and sculpture. Of the latter we have some important antique remains, for example horses at Venice, on Monte Cavallo, and on the Elgin marbles, also at Florence, in bronze and marble, the ancient boar, howling wolves, the lions in the arsenal at Venice, also in the Vatican, 
a whole room almost filled with ancient animals, etc. In these representations, the objective side of aesthetic pleasure obtains a marked predominance over the subjective. The peace of the subject, which knows these ideas, which has silenced its own will, is indeed present, as it is in all aesthetic contemplation, but its effect is not felt, for we are occupied with the restlessness and impetuosity of the will represented. It is that very will which constitutes our own nature, that here appears to us in forms in which its manifestation is not, as in us, controlled and tempered by intellect, but exhibits itself in stronger traits, and with a distinctness that borders on the grotesque and monstrous. For this very reason, there is no concealment, it is free, naive, open as the day, and this is the cause of our interest in animals. The characteristics of species appeared already in the representation of plants, but showed itself only in the forms. Here it becomes much more distinct and expresses itself not only in the form, but in the action, position, and mien, yet always merely as the character of the species, not of the individual. This knowledge of the ideas of higher grades, which in painting we receive through extraneous means, we may gain directly by the pure contemplative perception of plants and observation of beasts, and indeed of the latter in their free, natural, and unrestrained state. The objective contemplation of their manifold and marvellous forms, and of their actions and behaviour, is an instructive lesson from the great book of nature. It is a deciphering of the true signatura rerum. We see in them the manifold grades and modes of the manifestation of will, which in all beings of one and the same grade, wills always in the same way, which objectifies itself as life, as existence in such endless variety and such different forms, which are all adaptations to the different external circumstances, and may be compared to the many variations on the same theme. But if we had to communicate to the observer, for reflection, and in a word, the explanation of their inner nature, it would be best to make use of that Sanskrit formula, which occurs so often in the sacred books of the Hindus, and is called Mahavakya, that is, the great word, tattvam asi, which means this living thing art thou. The great problem of historical painting and sculpture is to express directly and for perception the idea in which the will reaches the highest grade of its objectification. The objective side of the pleasure afforded by the beautiful is here always predominant, and the subjective side has retired into the background. It is further to be observed that at the next grade below this animal painting the characteristic is entirely one with the beautiful. The most characteristic lion, wolf, horse, sheep or ox was always the most beautiful also. The reason of this is that animals have only the character of their species, no individual character. In the representation of men the character of the species is separated from that of the individual the former is now called beauty, entirely in the objective sense, but the latter retains the name character or expression, and the new difficulty arises of representing both, at once and completely, in the same individual. 
Human beauty is an objective expression, which means the fullest objectification of will at the highest grade at which it is knowable, the idea of man in general, completely expressed in the sensible form. But however much the objective side of the beautiful appears here, the subjective side still always accompanies it. And just because no object transports us so quickly into pure aesthetic contemplation as the most beautiful human countenance and form, at the sight of which we are instantly filled with unspeakable satisfaction and raised above ourselves and all that troubles us, this is only possible because this most distinct and pure knowledge of will raises us most easily and quickly to the state of pure knowing in which our personality our will with its constant pain disappears so long as the pure aesthetic pleasure lasts therefore it is that goethe says no evil can touch him who looks on human beauty he feels himself at one with himself and with the world that a beautiful human form is produced by nature must be explained in this way at this its highest grade the will objectifies itself in an individual and therefore through circumstances and its own power it completely overcomes all the hindrances and opposition which the phenomena of the lower grades present to it such are the forces of nature from which the will must always first extort and win back the matter that belongs to all its manifestations further the phenomenon of will at its higher grades always has multiplicity in its form even the tree is only a systematic aggregate of innumerably repeated sprouting fibres this combination assumes greater complexity in higher forms and the human body is an exceedingly complex system of different parts each of which has a peculiar life of its own vita propria subordinate to the whole now that all these parts are in the proper fashion subordinate to the whole and coordinate to each other that they all work together harmoniously for the expression of the whole nothing superfluous nothing restricted all these are the rare conditions whose result is beauty the completely expressed character of the species so is it in nature but how in art one would suppose that art achieved the beautiful by imitating nature but how is the artist to recognize the perfect work which is to be imitated and distinguish it from the failures if he does not anticipate the beautiful before experience and besides this has nature ever produced a human being perfectly beautiful in all his parts it has accordingly been thought that the artist must seek out the beautiful parts distributed among a number of different human beings and out of them construct a beautiful whole a perverse and foolish opinion for it will be asked how is he to know that just these forms and not others are beautiful we also see what kind of success attended the efforts of the old german painters to achieve the beautiful by imitating nature observe their naked figures no knowledge of the beautiful is possible purely a posteriori and from mere experience it is always at least in part a priori although quite different in kind from the forms of the principle of sufficient reason of which we are conscious a priori these concern the universal form of phenomena as such as it constitutes the possibility of knowledge in general the universal how of all phenomena 
and from this knowledge proceed mathematics and pure natural science. But this other kind of knowledge a priori, which makes it possible to express the beautiful, concerns not the form, but the content of phenomena, not the how, but the what of the phenomenon. That we all recognize human beauty when we see it, but that in the true artist this takes place with such clearness that he shows it as he has never seen it, and surpasses nature in his representation. This is only possible, because we ourselves are the will, whose adequate objectification at its highest grade is here to be judged and discovered. Thus alone have we in fact an anticipation of that which nature, which is just the will that constitutes our own being, strives to express. And in the true genius this anticipation is accompanied by so great a degree of intelligence that he recognizes the idea in the particular thing, and thus, as it were, understands the half-uttered speech of nature, and articulates clearly what she only stammered forth. He expresses in the hard marble that beauty of form which, in a thousand attempts, she failed to produce. He presents it to nature, saying, as it were, to her, that is what you wanted to say. And whoever is able to judge replies, yes, that is it. Only in this way was it possible for the genius of the Greeks to find the type of human beauty and establish it as a canon for the school of sculpture. And only by virtue of such an anticipation is it possible for all of us to recognize beauty when it has actually been achieved by nature in the particular case. This anticipation is the ideal. It is the idea so far as it is known a priori, at least half, and it becomes practical for art because it corresponds to and completes what is given a posteriori through nature. The possibility of such an anticipation of the beautiful a priori is the artist, and of its recognition a posteriori by the critic lies in the fact that the artist and the critic are themselves the in itself of nature, the will which objectifies itself. For as Empedocles said, like can only be known by like. Only nature can understand itself. Only nature can fathom itself. But only spirit also can understand spirit. The opinion which is absurd, although expressed by the Socrates of Xenophon, that the Greeks discovered the established ideal of human beauty empirically by collecting particular beautiful parts, uncovering and noting here a knee, there an arm, has an exact parallel in the art of poetry. The view is entertained that Shakespeare, for example, observed, and then gave forth from his own experience of life the innumerable variety of the characters in his dramas, so true, so sustained, so profoundly worked out. The impossibility and absurdity of such an assumption need not be dwelt upon. It is obvious that the man of genius produces the works of poetic art by means of an anticipation of what is characteristic, just as he produces the work of plastic and pictorial art by means of a prophetic anticipation of the beautiful. Yet both require experience as a pattern or model, for thus alone can that which is dimly known a priori be called into clear consciousness, and an intelligent representation of it becomes possible. Human beauty was explained above as the fullest objectification of will at the highest grade, at which it is knowable. It expresses itself through the form, and this lies in space alone. 
and has no necessary connection with time, as, for example, motion has. Thus far, then, we may say, the adequate objectification of will through a merely spatial phenomenon is beauty in the objective sense. A plant is nothing, but such a merely spatial phenomenon of will for no motion and consequently no relation to time regarded apart from its development belongs to the expression of its nature. Its mere form expresses its whole being and displays it openly. But brutes and men require further for the full revelation of the will which is manifested in them a series of actions and thus the manifestation in them takes on a direct relation to time all this has already been explained in the preceding book it is related to what we are considering at present in the following way as the merely spatial manifestation of will can objectify it fully or defectively at each definite grade and it is this which constitutes beauty or ugliness. So the temporal objectification of will, that is, of the action, and indeed the direct action, the movement, may correspond to the will which objectifies itself in it purely and fully, without foreign admixture, without superfluity, without defect, only expressing exactly the act of will determined in each case. Or the converse of all this may occur. In the first case, the movement is made with grace. In the second case, without it. Thus, as beauty is the adequate representation of will generally, through its merely spatial manifestation, grace is the adequate representation of will through its temporal manifestation. That is to say, the perfectly accurate and fitting expression of each act of will through the movement and position which objectify it. Since movement and position presuppose the body, Winkelmann's expression is very true and suitable. When he says, Grace is the proper relation of the acting person to the action, it is thus evident that beauty may be attributed to a plant, but no grace, unless in a figurative sense, but to brutes and men both beauty and grace. Grace consists, according to what has been said, in every movement being performed and every position assumed, in the easiest, most appropriate and convenient way, and therefore being the pure, adequate expression of its intention, or of the act of will, without any superfluity, which exhibits itself as aimless, meaningless bustle, or as wooden stiffness. Grace presupposes as its condition a true proportion of all the limbs and a symmetrical, harmonious figure for complete ease and evident appropriateness of all positions and movements are only possible by means of these. Grace is therefore never without a certain degree of beauty of person. The two, complete and united, are the most distinct manifestation of will at the highest grade of its objectification. It was mentioned above that in order rightly to portray man, it is necessary to separate the character of the species from that of the individual, so that, to a certain extent, every man expresses an idea peculiar to himself, as was said in the last book. Therefore, the arts, whose aim is the representation of the idea of man, have as their problem not only beauty, the character of the species, but also the character of the individual, which is called par excellence caractère. But this is only the case in so far as this character is to be regarded, 
not as something accidental and quite peculiar to the man as a single individual but as a side of the idea of humanity which is specially apparent in this individual and the representation of which is therefore of assistance in revealing this idea thus the character although as such it is individual must yet be ideal that is its significance in relation to the idea of humanity generally the objectifying of which it assists in its own way must be comprehended and expressed with special prominence apart from this the representation is a portrait a copy of the individual as such with all his accidental qualities and even the portrait ought to be as winkelmann says the ideal of the individual that character which is to be ideally comprehended as the prominence of a special side of the idea of humanity expresses itself visibly partly through permanent physiognomy and bodily form partly through passing emotion and passion the reciprocal modification of knowing and willing by each other which is all exhibited in the mien and movements since the individual always belongs to humanity and on the other hand humanity always reveals itself in the individual with what is indeed peculiar ideal significance beauty must not be destroyed by character nor character by beauty for if the character of the species is annulled by that of the individual the result is caricature and if the character of the individual is annulled by that of the species the result is an absence of meaning therefore the representation which aims at beauty as sculpture principally does will yet always modify this the character of the species in some respect by the individual character and will always express the idea of man in a definite individual manner giving prominence to a special side of it for the human individual as such has to a certain extent the dignity of a special idea and it is essential to the idea of man that it should express itself in individuals of special significance therefore we find in the works of the ancients that the beauty distinctly comprehended by them is not expressed in one form but in many forms of different character it is always apprehended as it were from a different side and expressed in one way in apollo in another way in bacchus in another in hercules in another in antinous indeed the characteristic may limit the beautiful and finally extend even to hideousness in the drunken silenus in the faun etc if the characteristic goes so far as actually to annul the character of the species if it extends to the unnatural it becomes caricature but we can far less afford to allow grace to be interfered with by what is characteristic than even beauty for graceful position and movement are demanded for the expression of the character also but yet it must be achieved in the way which is most fitting appropriate and easy for the person this will be observed not only by the sculptor and the painter but also by every good actor otherwise caricature will appear here also as grimace or distortion in sculpture beauty and grace are the principal concern the special character of the mind appearing in emotion passion alternations of knowing and willing which can only be represented by the expression of the countenance and the gestures is the peculiar sphere of painting for although eyes and color which lie outside the province of sculpture contribute much to beauty they are yet far more essential to character further beauty unfolds itself more completely 
when it is contemplated from various points of view. But the expression, the character, can only be completely comprehended from one point of view. Because beauty is obviously the chief aim of sculpture, Lessing tried to explain the fact that the Lao Kun does not cry out by saying that crying out is incompatible with beauty. The Lao Kun formed for Lessing the theme, or at least the text of a work of his own, and both before and after him a great deal has been written on the subject. I may therefore be allowed to express my views about it in passing. Although so special a discussion does not properly belong to the scheme of this work, which is throughout concerned with what is general. That Lao Kun in the celebrated group does not cry out is obvious, and the universal and ever-renewed surprise at this must be occasioned by the fact that any of us would cry out if we were in his place, and nature demands that it should be so. For in the case of the acutest physical pain, and the sudden seizure by the greatest bodily fear, all reflection that might have inculcated silent endurance is entirely expelled from consciousness, and nature relieves itself by crying out, thus expressing both the pain and the fear, summoning the deliverer and terrifying the assailer. Thus Winkleman missed the expression of crying out. But as he wished to justify the artist, he turned Lao Kun into a stoic, who considered it beneath his dignity to cry out secundum naturam, but added to his pain the useless constraint of suppressing all utterance of it. Winkelmann therefore sees in him the tried spirit of a great man who rides in agony and yet seeks to suppress the utterance of his feeling and to lock it up in himself. He does not break forth into loud cries, as in Virgil, but only anxious sighs escape him, etc. Now Lessing criticized this opinion of Winkelmann's in his Lao Kun, and improved it in the way mentioned above. In place of the psychological, he gave the purely aesthetic reason that beauty, the principle of ancient art, does not admit of the expression of crying out. Another argument which he added to this, that a merely passing state incapable of duration ought not to be represented in motionless works of art, has a hundred examples of most excellent figures against it, which are fixed in merely transitory movements, dancing, wrestling, catching, etc. Indeed, Goethe, in the essay on the Laokun, which opens the Propyline, holds that the choice of such a merely fleeting movement is absolutely necessary. In our own day, Hirt finally decided the point, deducing everything from the highest truth of expression that Lao Kun does not cry out, because he can no longer do so, as he is at the point of death from choking. Lastly, Fernau expounded and weighed all these opinions. He added, however, no new one of his own, but combined these three eclectically. I cannot but wonder that such a thoughtful and acute men should laboriously bring far-fetched and insufficient reasons, should resort to psychological and physiological arguments to explain a matter the reason of which lies so near at hand and is obvious at once to the unprejudiced. And especially I wonder that Lessing, who came so near the true explanation should yet have entirely missed the real point. 
before all psychological and physiological inquiries as to whether laokun would cry out in his position or not and i certainly affirm that he would it must be decided as regards the group in question that crying out ought not to be expressed in it for the simple reason that its expression lies quite outside the province of sculpture a shrieking laokun could not be produced in marble but only a figure with the mouth open vainly endeavouring to shriek a laokun whose voice has stuck in his throat walks forcibus heisit the essence of shrieking and consequently its effect upon the onlooker lies entirely in sound not in the distortion of the mouth this phenomenon which necessarily accompanies shrieking derives motive and justification only from the sound produced by means of it then it is permissible and indeed necessary as characteristic of the action even though it interferes with beauty but in plastic art to which the representation of shrieking is quite foreign and impossible it would be actual folly to represent the medium of violent shrieking the distorted mouth which would disturb all the features and the remainder of the expression for thus at the sacrifice of many other things the means would be represented while its end the shrieking itself and its effect upon our feelings would be left out nay more there would be produced the spectacle of a continuous effort without effect which is always ridiculous and may really be compared to what happened when some one for a joke stopped the horn of a night watchman with wax while he was asleep and then awoke him with a cry of fire and amused himself by watching his vain endeavours to blow the horn when on the other hand the expression of shrieking lies in the province of poetic or histrionic art it is quite admissible because it helps to express the truth that is the complete expression of the idea thus it is with poetry which claims the assistance of the imagination of the reader in order to enable it to represent things perceptibly therefore virgil makes laocoon cry out like the bellowing of an ox that has broken loose after being struck by the axe and homer makes mars and minerva shriek horribly without derogating from their divine dignity or beauty the same with acting laocoon on the stage would certainly have to shriek sophocles makes philoctetus cry out and on the ancient stage at any rate he must actually have done so as a case in point i remember having seen in london the great actor kemble play in a piece called pizarro translated from the german he took the part of the american a half savage but a very noble character when he was wounded he cried out loudly and wildly which had a great and admirable effect for it was exceedingly characteristic and therefore assisted the truth of the representation very much on the other hand a painted or sculptured model of a man shrieking would be much more absurd than the painted music which is censured in goethe's propyline for shrieking does far more injury to the expression and beauty of the whole than music which at the most only occupies the hands and arms and is to be looked upon as an occupation characteristic of the person indeed thus far it may quite rightly be painted as long as it demands no violent movement of the body or distortion of the mouth for example saint cecilia at the organ raphael's violin playing at the sciara gallery at rome and others
Since then, on account of the limits of the art, the pain of Laokun must not be expressed by shrieking. The artist was obliged to employ every other expression of pain. This he has done in the most perfect manner, as is ably described by Winkelmann, whose admirable account thus retains its full value and truth as soon as we abstract from the stoical view which underlies it. End of section 24. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.